0: You'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
1: I've been the editor of The New Yorker for 19 years. And the quality that I cleave to most, that I understand most, that, I, that, that excites me the most is obsession. Those are the people that I, I really, I look for, that I relate to most easily, that whatever the opposite of blasé is.
2: Hello and welcome to the Isra Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is a very exciting episode for me. I got to sit down with David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker. I guess the editor of The New Yorker does not need a lot more introduction or bio than that. But, but Remnick is a Pulitzer Prize winning author. He was at the Washington Post where he was a Moscow bureau chief. He wrote an amazing, amazing book, Lennon's Tomb, among many others. He's written biographies of Barack Obama, tremendous profiles of Bruce Springsteen, of Leonard Cohen, and he runs what may be the greatest magazine in the English language, This is a fun episode for me because I respect Remnick tremendously. You'll hear that in here. And getting to talk to him about what it is like to be an editor, how to do the work of running a a journalistic institution, all of that is, it's not just fun, it is uh, very useful for me. So I appreciate that he took the time. So I'm not going to spend too much time winding this up. Uh, I think it's pretty self-recommending. Here is David Remnick. David Remnick, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Ezra. It's a pleasure to be here in the hallowed New Yorker headquarters. <laughs> I don't
1: know how hallowed the studio is. It looks like any other studio,
2: but it's but, good to have you here. But but it feels more prestigious. <laughs> <laughs> Time will tell. So, I wanted to I wanted to begin prior to the New Yorker with you. You were the Moscow correspondent for the Washington Post. Well, I'm probably the only foreign
1: correspondent in the history of the Washington Post never to be a bureau chief. In other words, I was added to the Moscow Bureau, they, they brought in a second person because there was a revolution going on and it was a, you know, it, it was the Soviet Union then, but it was a piece of land that you, it took you 11 hours to fly across. So they thought maybe having a second correspondent would be a good idea. What year was this? I
2: started in the very beginning of 1988 and how do you how do you get the moscow job at that point that that's you a you want to know that's the a truth good job. i do cuz that's why we're here well it depends how vladilas f- nobody
1: really want very very few people wanted to go huh. it's not remember this is 1988 not now you know in the era of restaurants and and uh it's i'm not saying it's easy to live in moscow it it, it has its um whatever the opposite of charms is but it's really cold It's really grim in many people's minds. It's a hard language to learn, and you've got to learn it at least to some degree. And I think maybe two or three people put their hands up in the first place. What were you covering before that? Well, I came to the Washington Post almost right out of college. I graduated from college in 1981. I was an intern once, and then I was going to intern twice, And I thought I was going to get a job there. This was, was, (laughs) it sounds like ancient history, the idea of getting a job at the Washington Post right out of college. But those were the days. They were in in an expansive mode before they went tumbling downward and then now back upward with Jeff Bezos. But I didn't get a job because the other big paper in town folded the Washington Star. And they basically said, go away for a year. And I taught English in Japan um, because that's all I could think of to do and i did that and i bummed around asia and india and south, East, south asia as well for for months and months and came back and became a staff member of the washington post as a night police reporter and that you were doing night police reporting and no then i was just, and so for the next six, 7 years or 6 6 years i suppose i bounced around the washington post in washington i was a night police reporter a metro reporter a sports reporter for a couple of years Uh, I was on the magazine and I was more happily on the style section, which in those days was a kind of a hot section of the paper where you could write political profiles and essays. And it was, it was the style section of the Washington post in those days and starting maybe even in, maybe in the seventies was the Washington Post's response to the new journalism to, to Esquire, Rolling Stone and all that stuff that was fermenting and, 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 and creating such a, uh, uh, hot stuff in the journalistic world. And the, the Post and Ben Bradley wanted to be a part of that in some way.
2: Do you think it's weird that in journalism broadly, newspapers in particular, subject issue expertise is not more of a qualification for jobs? Well, I would slightly disagree in that you have to remember where you're
1: coming from. I mean, the history of journalism in, in the United States is really interesting in that loads and loads of papers were instruments of political parties or business interests or whatever. And it wasn't very serious. There's a lot of crap for decades and decades and decades. Real New York papers carrying six part series on life on the moon and things like that. And serious journalism as you and I know it for all its flaws is a more or less 20th century invention. The New York Times, then the Washington Post and other such outlets. And so what came with that eventually is people with college educations, the disappearance of the gin bottle in the, in the right-hand drawer. So it wasn't until later that, you know, somebody that had had, you know, God forbid, a graduate school education in economics or political science or whatever uh, even popped its head up. That was a real rarity. Um, so to your view, you know, there's a difference in our ages you're saying there's no not much specialty in particular subjects which is largely true but remember where you came from remember where this trade came from we now call it a profession i, I you know i'm i'm old enough
2: to think of that in ironic terms so the, the reason i ask that is it's something i think a lot about when hiring at vox and and just thinking about the profession broadly you can often go in one of two directions, and obviously you try to split the difference to the extent you can, but there are people who have great journalistic skill sets. They're beautiful writers, they're great reporters, they're incredibly dogged. And then you can also go and say, but but they've been covering something else. And so to teach them politics or for them to learn how to be right, uh, they a kind of course. They
1: rotate. And and you know, in foreign correspondence, for example, the tradition until recently was that so and so would go for three, four, five years. Mm-hmm. And, and it was paradoxical because that person, unless they were completely burnt out or exhausted or sick of it, got better with time. You know, I now watch with keen interest the new Moscow correspondent from one paper or another or one site or another. And I can almost predict, no matter how sharp they are, or that in the beginning there are certain features that get written over and over again. The appearance of what's called puch, this kind of... Um, kind of, uh, I don't know what the hell it is, this kind of thing in the air in Moscow in the springtime that makes you cough and we get a feature about that or about, uh, you know, somebody encounters for the first time that it gets cold in Moscow <laughs> in, the, in the winter. You get call- stories about that or these cliches get then blown away by, you know, as you get better at it, you learn more and uh, you get past surfaces. So you would say to yourself, well, why isn't it better to do as the Europeans do very often? Somebody stays there for 10 years or 20 years. I, I, I can't answer that. Um, but it, it is is—it is very rare that someone comes and they go to Moscow or China or, or whatever with, with real expertise. Evan Osnos, who covered China for us, had studied Chinese for not the requisite, you know, year and maybe a summer in Middlebury or something like that. He had eight years of Chinese and Chinese history and politics and study before he went there for the Chicago Tribune. And then when we were lucky enough to uh, steal him away. But somebody
2: like that is a rarity. But one thing you could imagine having emerged in journalism is that as opposed to taking good journals and teaching them new subjects, we took subject issue experts and taught them journalism, right? You can imagine that you would go find... A political scientist who specialized in Russia, uh, yeah. international issues. Well, you know, I think if, if I have this and story right,
1: Steve Cohen, who, who is uh, an emeritus professor at Princeton and NYU, told me that he was either considered for or asked to be the Moscow correspondent of the New York Times many, many years ago. Hmm. He's a, quite a controversial figure now for uh, for his views about Putin and so on. This was many years ago. And it didn't happen for one reason or another. But that was a real
2: rarity. So do you think we get that balance right?
1: Well, I mean, it's a kind of leading question because you clearly feel one way or another, but... I actually don't. I I, 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 I struggle with it. You know, I've seen it. A paper like the New York Review of Books clearly does do that. So Jeffrey Madrick is an economist. Paul Krugman is an economist. Uh, There are people with... But people, you know, can have what you and I call continuing educations, they, they, they learn more. I mean, it's, you know, quite frankly, I'm able to hold my own in a conversation about Russia with Steve Kotkin or Steve Cohen. I mean, they know more about this or that, but if you keep up and you're serious about it, um, uh, I don't know that the branding of a, of an MA, it makes you, uh, overly qualified as opposed to the person who's a journalist and journalistic skills are not just They ain't nothing. Uh, They're not all intellectual. Here's what a journalistic skill is. Sheer, stubborn persistence. So Seymour Hirsch, when he was young, was brought back, as he always was, back and forth with the New York Times, with with which he had a very complicated relationship. The, The Times was getting killed on Watergate. Killed by Woodward and Bernstein. And they bring in Cy Hirsch, and he had a story that he was working on about Charles Colson, one of the the bad actors in the the administration. And he needed to get Colson on the phone. Now, this is, again, this is not a PhD-worthy thing. It's getting another human on the phone who doesn't want to talk to you. And he got in at 9 a.m. In those days, nobody got in a newspaper at 9 a.m. And he called Charles Coulson's phone number every 10 minutes until 6 p.m. And then he got him and he got the story and it was a story of consequence. Would he have been better off with a PhD? How many PhDs would be willing to dial a rotary telephone every 10 minutes for, for, um, you know, the better part of nine, 10 hours? I don't know. Not all of journalism is the intellectual component of it. No, of course not. How do you teach that doggedness? I don't, you know, I have to say the... As a, I've been the editor of the New Yorker for 19 years, it's not a short period of time, I guess. And the one, the quality that I, I cleave to most, that I understand most, that I that that excites me the most is obsession. Obsession, and that carries itself out in a number of ways. It can be intellectual obsession. It can be just the sheer obsession with the activity of journalism, whether it's investigative, explanatory. commentary, uh, criticism. Those are the people that I, I really, I look for that I relate to most easily. Um, whatever the opposite of blase is, for example, I, I look at, I look at what's happening now in, in investigative journalism. This is not uh, above all intellectual work. I mean, look at what David Ferren told at the Washington Post does. He takes all the charities in the United States, the top 200 charities, and he calls them all to see what Donald Trump did or did not give those charities. Simply to see if this wealthy man, this billionaire or so-called billionaire, has a charitable bone in his body who's going to, who's you know, wants to be the president of the United States just during the campaign. And Farenthold called them all and discovered that none or almost none of them had received a single dime from Donald Trump, which told you a lot. It's not PhD work.
2: <laughs> I think I've somehow made you defensive about No, I'm not PhD defensive stuff. about it.
1: Be, hey, look, I, you know, I, 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 there's a large, you know, we have Jill Lepore writes for us, professor right, that's at a, Harvard. This is an incredibly brilliant staff you have here. But the only brilliant ones are not just professors is, it's not just luke manan this is a question English i was card. actually
2: trying to get at which I, is i think it may be a bit different than, than than what it came across i'm curious on what you think you can teach so when you're looking at mm. people for the new yorker and you look at a candidate and they've got some skills that are there mm. and some that aren't what are the things that you look at and you say well if you don't have that i can help you get that yeah that's a Whereas great. if you don't have that
1: it's never going to come it's a great question. And the person has to be willing and able to absorb. And, but when they are, a lot of things can happen. So for example, a couple of years ago, my friend and colleague, Steve Coll, who writes for the New Yorker, has written many books and, and now uh, runs the Columbia School of Journalism and Columbia University called me and said, look, you know, there's this very young guy, Ben Taub, who spent months hanging out at it's part of a project on the Turkish-Syrian border. Now, I've done stuff like that in my time. I'm 58 years old. I don't want to hang out on that border for too long. It's boring. It's dangerous. It's lonely. It, it, this is why there aren't that many 58-year-old foreign correspondents in nasty parts of the world. There are some. Dexter Filkins is going to do it until he can't do it no more, I'm pretty sure, or John Lee Anderson and, and others. But it's it's... It's often a young person's game for all the obvious reasons. Now, did Ben know how to write a long New Yorker piece yet? No. But he had the ex- the absolute absorption in the material of what he was doing of war crimes. And, and he was very smart. And so all what he needed was a good editor. And he started working with Willing Davidson who started here as a fiction editor and now does both, does nonfiction. And he started to learn how to by just by talking and picking things up, how to tell a story, how to pace something, what it meant to have the story or what it meant to not be there yet. You know, same thing happened with Evan Osnos. Evan Osnos had more of a background. He had been at the Chicago Tribune. He handed in his first piece from China to John Bennett. And it, you know, it was fine, but it was like a long newspaper piece, taking nothing away from newspapers. It was not, what one would hope for but Bennett edited him talked with him and then the second piece came in and it was completely transformational he had he had absorbed all these lessons about storytelling and pacing and characterization and taking your time and all the many things that can actually be learned same thing with creative writing A lot of writers used to be very dismissive of this. And maybe there is a creative writing industrial complex and so on. But the truth is, uh, art schools, uh, creative writing schools can teach you. Do they substitute for genius? Do they substitute for how much reading you do? Do they substitute for absolute obsession and drivenness? No.
0: But there are things that can be taught. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
2: How do you hire editors?
1: That's harder. It is. It's much harder because writers... You you can read their work, and you can tr- at least start to try to imagine what person A, working for for such and such a publication, might be like at the New Yorker. You're not always right, but you're in you're in spitting range of it because you're reading them. You see the product of their of their work, and you make all kinds of allowances for various exigencies of, you know, okay, they're writing for a newspaper or for some other form. It's going to be different here, but editors, it's much harder. How do you see their work? Well, talking with them is one thing because you get a sense of their personality and intelligence in the chair of, to a limited degree. But how they work with writers, what confidence they instill or inspiration they help bring along, uh, what they do to a manuscript, is, it's, um, I find, tougher. It's do trickier. You, do you do editing tests? Do you? We do. We do. And they tell you something up to a point up to a point what is a great editor hmm. well for example you know we ha- we're blessed with with a number of them uh really blessed
2: i've had the good fortune to be edited here and it's a it's okay, a so, great experience so
1: i work with henry Finder. so and, when you write he edits you yeah, yeah and has for years and um it's some first of all he is not a as we say uh, a feller. He is not one I where I hand something in and even if it's good, it's not like he, you know, he's going to shower me with little bonbons of praise. We've been, we've been at this too long, maybe. So I, I, I know the difference when he thinks I've come within spitting range of somewhere, th- something halfway good and when maybe not because I can read him and he can read me pretty well. It's a product of a long relationship. But he has an incredible ear. He has he reads up on what you're writing about, so he becomes fluent in... I've seen him become fluent in the NBA, in music, in literature, in philosophy. He's a polymath. Same thing happens with Daniel Zalewski. Daniel Zalewski, the way he works with David Grant, the transformation of David Grant at the at, at earlier publications and ours had a lot to do with that relationship with, with Daniel Zalewski. Um, I see it all over the place. And, but, but they are rare. But they're rare. It has to do with temperament. It has to do with patience, encouragement, but also the thing itself. W- what level of clarity can the editor bring
2: to it? What the questions he or she asks uh, are crucial. Do you think that great editors come up through editing or they're writers who become editors?
1: Robert Silvers, who was probably the great, editor of his extended generation who just died a couple of months ago who edited the new york review of books i don't know that he wrote anything other than a, a little preface here and there to a collection or something mankin was a great editor and he wrote so i don't think there's any f- formula here
2: i really don't um do you think there's a difference between editors who were writers i know that and i know aren't?
1: that henry finder and dorothy wickenden and dan Zaleski and others at the new yorker are much better editors in the way i've been describing than i am my job is a little different i have things to say about manuscripts but i i have a different kind of job than they do the new york review of books is very different than the new yorker the new york review of books for decades was bob silvers and barbara epstein I don't mean that's it, there are people in the office, but the, those people were serving those two. They did some editing, some copy editing, but I, it, it was those two working on everything. And, and, and those people were mi- miraculous. Um, the New York Road's a bit different. We have, it, there's more volume. Now with the web, there's even more volume. It just works in a different way.
2: Back to Moscow. Sure. How did you prepare to go? <laughs> You know,
1: it goes to your question of expertise. What I studied in college was literature. Some of it Russian, but in translation, I was the world's worst Russian student. I had some in high school because in my big public high school in New Jersey, it was the only semi-sexy thing they had. Some guy happened to know Russian. And I thought after four years that I had learned some Russian. What a delusion. I got to college and there were these two Russian born teachers and they gave you a kind of an aptitude test, so where you would place. And the teachers, one of them said, David, uh, you should start from beginning. I said, well, I had four years of Russian high school. Maybe I'll start in the second year. She said, of course, it is your funeral. (laughs) (laughs) And so instead I compromised and I started with second semester where I proceeded to get a C plus and then in the following semester I got a D. Not good. Not good. And I, by the way, worked my ass off on it. And that's what I produced, C plus and a D. So I stopped taking Russian. Never stopped, you know, reading Chekhov and all, all the rest. But I thought this had defeated me. And so if I get to the Washington Post at a certain point. They say, do you want this job? You know, I did, desperately. I thought it was just the adventure of a lifetime. And boy, was I Right. And I had to start all over again. Started all over again from the beginning. First with a tutor, then with Middlebury. And, and my wife, who had no Russian at all, just caught up to me in 10 seconds because she's very good at it. And then I lived there for four years. And I made trip after trip without any translator. I mean, and you just, you're immersed in it. And by, by the way, my office, unlike the New York Times office, we had the world's worst staff until at the very end we were able to hire outside of, you know, KGB circles finally hired Masha Lipman to be the office you know, translator, who then proceeded to be one of Wait, the best editors in Moscow. I'm sorry, when you say you had to hire outside, before that, were you hiring, you could only so hire basically KGB there agents? Was, we, there's, a, there's a system called UPEDAKA. I'll spare you what it stands for, but it's basically the, the state agency that supplies diplomats and journalists and all the rest with employees, um, huh. drivers, uh, translators, and all the rest. And they had two jobs. One was to do the job at hand, translating, fixing, all that stuff. The other was to go to a meeting on Friday and say, I don't know, Remnick is talking about blah, 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 or, you know, Michael Dobbs, my, the bureau chief, a wonderful journalist, is, is, you know, up to no good because he's doing X, Y, or Z. It, they had to inform. You know, if you had a cleaning woman, you know, same thing. They went to these ridiculous meetings. That system began to loosen and crack by about 1990 and we got rid of the really awful translators we had and we drank in the office and just were useless. And we hired a woman who named Masha Lipman, a dear, dear friend to this day, um, who obviously <laughs> was not part of that system. Very independent-minded person, had all kinds of dissident friends and, and, and incredibly informed, brilliant Married to a Byzantine scholar named Sergei Ivanov. Uh, Really helped widen our world. And, you know, had English, you know, the way you dream of. And so that world changed.
2: What was the experience of... I mean, without being deluded about Mm -hmm. the persistence of the KGB itself. When you began reporting stories out in Russia, what was the experience of trying to find out what was true... Both, given the surrounding political context, given the number of people who might have been afraid to talk or actively trying to mislead, and also just given your lack of knowledge of the language of the culture. Well,
1: look, the language got better, and I, I, and I want to pour mad myself. I managed mm-hmm. fine after a while, and when I didn't, I you know prevailed on a translator or a friend or whatever, what what have you. You have to remember when I was there, and when my wife Esther Fine was there, she was writing for the New York Times. Um, the world had blown up in the best sense possible. The policy of glasnost, perestroika, and all this, suddenly, after decades and decades of foreign correspondence operating in a world in which you had no sources or very, very few sources, you basically had either dissidents, which you have to remember was a very, very small number of people, or you had the small number of officials that circumscribed officials who were willing to talk to you up to a point. Suddenly, I mean, and, and really, Ezra, suddenly, it was as if the bottle cap had blown off and everybody wanted to talk. Ordinary people felt the permission to talk. The circle of, of, of political opponents widened. Government people gave interviews because they knew that they could. And very often they were truthful. Kind of like now in the United States. I was going to say. Yeah. I mean, let's... let's, let's Maybe this, even not like was, right now. It, exactly. <laughs> so it was a... For a reporter from about 1987 into the 90s, it was a journalistic paradise. Paradise. It was a revolution in which... Remember, very few people were getting killed. And when they did, you were too late to get there because it happened in, you know, one, you know in Tbilisi or Baku or, or, or Ferghana in, in Uzbekistan. You know, it was, it was this... Uh, <laughs> journalistically, every morning you would go outside and hold out your basket and it would be filled with rain. Filled with information. You could have spent weeks never leaving your apartment and just writing right out of the newspapers. Because today, Akhmatova was published. Tomorrow, Solzhenitsyn was published. The next day, Aganyok, for the first time, a weekly magazine, was going to publish a big expose on the war in Afghanistan. Just by relating what was in the press and on the radio and on the television was revelatory. It was easy. Michael Dobbs and I used to compete. You see, do you think we can get three three stories on the front page today? Nah, maybe we'll just go for two. It was, it was a form of cockiness, that, but, you know, anybody could have done it with half an effort. I, I just, I can't, I, I loved it. I loved it. I worked from, you know, 9.30 in the morning till 2 in the morning every day for four years. We, my, my wife and I bought cross-country skis and we brought them to Moscow. They never left the bag. I never used them once. I think we gave them away. Were you optimistic about where the country was going? Preposterously so. I mean, I, I, I would ask. I you have to look at it in the larger sense. I mean, when I left Moscow at the end of 1991, Sovietism, totalitarianism, and the imperial structure of the Soviet Union had collapsed. There was no illusions that this was going to create all kinds of dislocations of of predictable and unpredictable kinds but overall there's an enormous sense of optimism. At the same time, you could say the same thing throughout Eastern and Central Europe. Um, There were all kinds of possibilities elsewhere in the world. The number of democracies shot up, shot up from the mid eighties until the beginning of the 21st century. So of course I was optimistic. And here we are in 2017, And if I had known then, you know, that we'd land now, you know, we'd be in a very grim
2: mood. How would you explain where Russia is in 2017? And how it got there? Yeah, but even just where it is, right? Because I think a lot of people listening, people have intuitions, they have, you know, they hear a bit about it. But given the hopes that people had for Russia after 1989, what would you say is the state of the country now? Well, remember, this is already... 28 years mm-hmm. it's a long
1: time and the phrase always was when will russia become a normal country and what followed 1991 was perhaps predictable filled with mistakes filled with abuses um, but there was for a while a sense that it could all tumble into a certain sense of normalcy but it just it, it didn't i mean for example it's very hard for somebody living here in the United States to imagine what the Soviet economy meant. What it meant. and One of the things it meant was there was a system called Uranilovka, which meant a kind of equality in poverty. Everybody, with the exception of high-ranking Soviet officials and some select artists and so on, lived in this kind of lower-middle-class Uh state of uh, both deprivation, but a a sense of a certain kind of low hanging social safety net, unusually good schools, certainly in the cities. But, you know, outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg, really pretty, pretty grim. But there was this sense that you weren't taunted by, you weren't um, humiliated by the rise of billionaires and people who owned yachts and cities and villages in italy and all the rest the disparities that popped up in the 90s by design um were humiliating to people uh democracy was obviously not very democratic so this you know our we all wanted yeltsin to beat the communist in 1996 but he stole the election he stole the election. There's no question about this. How did he steal an election? Well, his popularity ratings were in the single digits. And in those days, the oligarchs still had control of a good deal of the media and and TV and and other outlets. And they got together at Davos, of all places. There were about eight, of, eight or nine of them. And they decided we have to keep Yeltsin in office for our own, for the sake of the country, but hardly selfless because of their own self-interest. They were oligarchs because they had proximity to the Kremlin and Kremlin power. Berezovsky, Gusinsky, all these people. Khodorkovsky, by the way. And they won the election by a number of means, most prominent of which was on the, in the media to propagate the idea that communism would return and everything would be horrible. And by the way, it might've been right. This is what makes it morally complex, but there is no question. You cannot pat yourself on the back and say that democratic norms propelled Boris Yeltsin to, who by that time was a wreck, a wreck to victory in 1996 and this, and by that time, most ordinary people started calling demokratia, democracy, dirmokratia, shitocracy. A, it allowed the country to take on, if they hadn't already, by the various things that were happening in the economy and how the pie was carved up, a deeply ironical and contemptuous view of these things that were, that were seen as Western democracy, capitalism, and all the rest. So when Putin arrives in 2000, he is brought in for a number of reasons. He's going to let the Yeltsin family get off scot-free for whatever abuses. And his idea is to bring back state security as the pillar of of, uh, state power. And he didn't get rid of the oligarchy, he just created a new one, his oligarchy. His connections, his people from Saint Petersburg, his people from his dacha compound, the Ozera dacha compound, his judo instructor, his family, etc. But it's much more efficient. It's uh, he's not drunk. He's he's on a horseback and he's vigorous. So, what's been created is Putinism which is a form of authoritarianism and oligarchy in which, which it's hard for me, and I'm sorry to ramble on with this, but in 1991, I sat in an office in Lubyanka, KGB headquarters, interviewing the new liberal head of the Moscow State Security Services. A real liberal. I wouldn't get within 50 feet of getting in an office in Lubyanka at this point. that's where where power is. It's a grim picture, and you don't have to be... I agree, I'm going to say something that I rarely say, I agree with the premise of (laughs) Donald Trump that it would be nice to have a good relationship with Russia. Yeah, it would be nice. It's to be desired, it would help stability, but I I think you have to describe that structure for what it is.
2: Could you have imagined, predicted the way Russia would develop? No, not just develop, now collide with American politics in the last two years. Look, it's been happening for a much longer
1: time. It's been happening for a much longer time. The resentments of the United States, in 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 Russian eyes, you did not have to be Putin to feel that the United States was overplaying its hand following the collapse of the Soviet Union. Even Yeltsin felt that he was... Can we say these words on podcasts? It was swallowing a lot of shit. You can say whatever you want. And said as much to Strobe Talbot, who was Bill Clinton's Russia person. He said as much to Clinton himself. You know, the United States felt we've won. We'll help Russia, but we've won the Cold War and we'll seize the advantage where we can and we'll help them where it's in our interest to help. But certainly the Russian leadership felt that it was swallowing shit when it came to uh, the Balkans and our policy in the Balkans. Um, it felt, uh, certainly Putin felt that it had, and he was not wrong, that it, he'd been right about Iraq, the adventure in Iraq and Libya and all the rest. There's a lot in Putin's psychology of it, about Russian reestablishment of Russian pride and place in the world of not wanting to be third rate, of not wanting to be called what used, the cliche used to be upper volta with rockets.
2: What do you think it is like for not just Putin, but Russians to watch the chaos they have thrown American politics into?
1: I mean, I wonder how... Well, when you say when they watch, that's the key, that's the key Mm -hmm. verb because almost all Russians are absorbing, like as as in elsewhere in the world... their news through television. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard for me to describe for you accurately the degree to which Soviet television is um, a reflection of the world as Putin wants it to be. It's a completely uh, state-controlled, KGB-inflected medium. Uh, The level of propaganda is preposterous, and... You know, happily, I can now watch the evening broadcasts on YouTube every day and my favorite, some of my favorite shows on YouTube, and they're amazing. Because I remember Soviet, you know, TV and propaganda from even, you know, from when I was studying Russian, we'd watch programs and, you know, it was stilted. It was transparent. It was, people in the Soviet Union knew it was nonsense. This is much more sophisticated. It looks, you know, great.
2: Um... It can be funny, but the level of propaganda is is quite extraordinary. But I would imagine that, uh, and and this is what I was getting at, that the propaganda must love the actual real grist we have given them now. There, There have been phases. There have been phases.
1: I think it's true to say that there was a certain amount of rooting for Trump to win in the beginning. But I think there's also a degree of buyer's remorse of having overplayed their hand. Uh, It's it's not as if um, having Trump in office has helped (laughs) Russian-American relations. Trump, probably against his own desires, you know, signed sanctions into into extension. Uh, When I watch, so the the most (laughs) scabrous show, is something called News of the Week on Sunday nights with a guy named Dmitry Kiselyov, who's incredibly sarcastic, not unintelligent, very skillful propagandist. I've, been, I've interviewed him. And I've noticed that there's less cheering for Trump, distinctly less. What they like most of all is the fact that we are now self-obsessed and self-absorbed and stumbling and Daily news energy is taken up, not with uh, rational discussion of geopolitics, but, you know, Steve Bannon or Scaramucci or all the rest?
2: Well, oh, I was thinking of it because I remember the conversation about this before the election when the possibility that Trump would win was considered by many to be remote, obviously much more remote than it really was. Yeah, they, 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 th- and, they thought Clinton right. was going to win too. They just wanted to undermine a Clinton president. Exactly. So. And so, you know, what I what I was told by people who watch this was that, you know, what Russia is doing is they want to so doubt about American democracy. They want to show that it is not this perfect and, and, shining. And look how easy it and, was and to create. Do. <laughs> and
1: create what Putin loathes most of all. It's so it's so on the surface you can see it is any sign of moral
2: superiority from mm-hmm. the West. Which was Barack Obama's stock in trade when dealing with Vladimir Putin.
1: Yeah. Well, well to some degree, to some degree, and by the way, well-deserved.
2: I'm not arguing that point. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I, you know, so the more he can muddy the waters, the more he can instill self-doubt in America, the more he can despoil the uh, concept of American exceptionalism, if there's any sense of that anywhere and loosen in, in the, in the, in the land anymore, he's happy. But, but it calls- doesn't change the picture in Russia itself, which is utterly and totally dependent on this kind of Putinist oligarchic structure this criminal structure that again, if you if you, Ezra, were to go to Moscow today and stay in the obvious hotels and confine most of your, your doings to inside the what's called the Garden Ring Road or even the Third Ring Road, you would think, oh my God, I mean, this is like, you know, s- Cyrillic <laughs> or Slavic um, Dubai. There's shoppings. When I lived there, there were no restaurants. So now there are shopping centers and you, you need a Zenia Thai for $200. No problem. You can get, you, you don't really like uh, Southern Japanese food. You just want, you maybe a Hokkaido cuisine. No problem. You can live a life if you've got the, the credit card of, of extraordinary uh, privilege and wealth and all the rest. And you could do it to some degree in St. Petersburg too, and to some degree in little spots of other cities. But that's not the mass of Russians live r- n- not so great. And the, and the middle class explosion has stalled. Lowered uh, oil prices have, have really undercut this explosion. Sanctions haven't done them any favor. Um, you know, Putinism is not a victory for the Russian people. It's a victory for the people around Putin.
2: Let me pull us back to journalism for a bit. How did you go from Moscow correspondent to editor of The New
1: Yorker? <laughs> <laughs> so i I came back from Moscow, and wha- i I got this kind of small grant from the Council on Foreign Relations to sit in a tiny office up in the up in the uh, w- in that mansion on Madison Avenue between Madison and Park, and I wrote a book. I spent the year writing a book and shuttling between Moscow and New York a couple of times to finish and i was intending to go back to the washington post but this in, is london's tomb yeah it's a wonderful and, book thank you and i was going to i was going to be the new york correspondent for the washington post largely because my parents were really failing i mean my mother's still alive but they're both one had parkinson's one had ms being in washington much less moscow was really not tenable and i love you know i'm a new york i love new york much more than washington And Tina Brown called me on the telephone and she was the editor of Vanity Fair. We had lunch and weirdly throughout the entire lunch, all she wanted to talk about was The New Yorker where I'd written one piece. And I guess I'm pretty naive and I didn't know what that was all about. And then a few months later, she became the editor of The New Yorker and hired me as a writer. And so for five years, five fairly blissful years, I was a writer for The New Yorker. And then after Tina quit, and went off to do a magazine called Talk Magazine. There was no editor. And uh, Cy Newhouse, the owner of The New Yorker, offered the job first to Michael Kinsley. That arrangement fell apart for whatever reason, and, uh, and the next day the job was offered to me. It's a, And I have to say, Ezra, it's a, it was, you know, even 19 years later, a little odd since I'd never edited anything, certainly not professionally. If you or, or had ever edited or yeah. managed, it sounds like, not managed No, big in staff. fact, in a Moscow bureau of two people, Michael Dobbs was the bureau <laughs> chief, so I didn't even manage that.
2: So how did you persuade Sign Newhouse, or how I did Sign Newhouse get persuaded I, you, you, that you could I, run I, it? I, to this day,
1: I, I'm, I'm not being faux naïve here. I don't have any idea. We had a couple of meetings where I thought the meetings were about gee, who would be a good idea? And I'm talking to a few writers at The New Yorker and maybe Remnick might have an idea. And then at the end of the second meeting, um, I could see where this conversation was going a little differently. And I said, well, maybe I'll write a memo over the weekend about things maybe that should change or improve or alter at The New Yorker or develop. And over that weekend, he met with Michael Kinsley, offered him a job, changed his mind, about which I knew nothing until Monday morning and was offered the job at 10 o'clock on a Monday morning. And he said, you have, you know, you can take about
2: a half an hour
1: to decide. (laughs) And I did.
2: You must have in the subsequent 19 years had some conversation, the new house that shed light on what he saw in you. No,
1: I would tell you Ezra. I really, I think he probably thought, you know, here's a, writer that the previous editor got along with well and has some sense of judgment. Maybe there's something in that conversation that, you know, didn't repel him. Um, I, you know, won a couple of awards maybe. So, you know, I have no idea. I really don't. And, and he's a pretty quiet guy and we talked about a million different things,
2: but that wasn't one of them. So you come in in 98, is it? Yeah. This is a flush moment. Not for the New Yorker. Is that right? No, we were losing money. Ah. Because I think of that as one of those, I think of that late 90s period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a moment before period, journalism. Yeah, yeah.
1: No, I, I remember, we have a different kind of business. I um, And we can talk about that. I have no secrets about it. Um, What happened... I think we tend to see this only in terms of the internet age and thereafter. With The New Yorker, the zenith of advertising, the zenith, 6,000 pages, was in 1967. It the, the New Yorker, which was invented in 1925, really as an economic thing, just rode a post-war consumerist boom, you know, with the developing middle and upper middle class and all those ads. And the reason the New Yorker started publishing, you know, three-part series and four-part series was not only on their literary and journalistic merit, but also the n- need to have editorial matter running next to, you know, teacher's scotch and this travel agent and that department store. And that started to change. There became more things in the newsstand. Television became bigger. All, all these other media, things changed. People's tastes changed. Other competitors happened. So the zenith of advertising for the New Yorker was late sixties. And thereafter it was a rather slow slide down so there it didn't, wasn't perceptible. The New Yorker was independent. It was owned by the Fleischman family and it still made a profit. And Fleischman's began to care too late, I would say. And the new ha- the new houses bought it. It was kind of on the brink of, you know, up and down on, under the uh, red and black, and and then it it was distinctly in the red for a while, a good while. And um, the question was how to get it out, how to change that. And uh, Tina Brown, I think, did a lot of great things and to arouse interest in the magazine. You know, there were controversi- controversies and all the rest, but she made some some terrific hires, I think, of writers um she changed the culture of the place which was very you know alarming for you know garrison keeler freaked out and left and a few others too some have come back um it was a destabilizing moment and depending on who you were and how you saw it could better and different and advertising continued to go down no matter what and it, it did better at certain times and But when I started in 1998, it was losing money. And it was very clear after a while, to me, this is even before tech really boomed, um, that despite the tech advertising bubble and things like of the the past, like Red Envelope and things like that used to advertise, that we were not going, 1967 was not going to return. And certainly the internet was not going to help it do so. You know, we're now at a situation where Google and Facebook own, you know, two-thirds, three-quarters of the, certainly of web advertising. Retail has changed in this country. There are more options. People are doing their own advertising, kind of publications and so on. And there are only two ways to make money in this business, advertising and what's gently called consumers, meaning the readers, what they pay. And we were always very low, like 25 bucks for 50, 52 issues is crazy. I thought it was crazy. You know, you're getting a publication that has a, you know, a Alice Monroe story and a Philip Goreyevich, you know, epic on this and talk of the town and cartoons and da, da, da. And and all you're paying for it is 50 cents? Less than one issue of the the newspaper on a newsstand at that time? It's crazy. So the proposition now is, for a subscription that each week you might pay what you would get a small cappuccino at Starbucks. And I really think that for the, what we turn out on the web every day, which will only increase in its richness, what we publish in print and then online immediately on uh, midnight Sunday, uh, Monday, is, is worth that at least. And our readers have, thank God, agreed. And we've been making, we've been making
2: a, a handsome profit for quite some time. The New Yorker has gone in the direction to build a business and has been successful doing it in actually charging money for the product. Mm-hmm. When a lot of organizations are actually going in the opposite direction, right? Not only are we relying on advertising, but we're on increasing platforms where we get nothing on the platforms at all. Correct. What are the differing incentives of running a publication where you actually are trying to charge money for the product? How does it change the way you run the publication? How would it be different? Well, the happy, Mm -hmm. I would
1: say the happy coincidence is that our readers want what we do when we are at our best. So in other words, the worst thing I could do, not only as a moral and journalistic proposition is dumb the magazine down, but it would be the stupidest thing I can do as a business proposition. That's what our readers want. I don't need, you know, consultants or polls or surveys to tell me that. I just know it. I know it. When Rafi Dorian publishes a 20,000-word profile on which he has spent, in essence, years on Julian Assange, our readers want that. When Larry Wright writes about uh, Scientology or this Texas State Legislature at Great Length, our readers want that. And I don't mean just things of great length that take months and months to do. They want they want to read Jelani Cobb on or Gia Tolentino online. Um, I, I, again, do we publish things that are sometimes not so great or, you know Yeah. Yeah. I, nothing's perfect, but what our readers want us to do is give it our very best, our very our all to be as accurate as possible to be as fair as possible, and that has worked out. I, I can't predict the future, Ezra. I really don't know the stuff is, you know, there was no Vox X years ago. There was no Slate. There was no, you know, the, the media universe. What University, a grim world. <laughs> especially Vox, of course. It's changing all the time. It's changing radically all the time. Um, but I do think that there are some, what's the phrase for the legacy Publications. The New York Times is another. The Washington, the Washington Post is a special case. Washington Post um, is a special case. And I look. I hope what just happened with the Atlantic helps the Atlantic. I want the. I, I, I'm in competition with a lot of these places, but
2: I want the the ecosystem to be fertile. I don't want to be the only tree standing. How do you think about competition in, in this area? Because I get asked this a lot yeah. um, in different ways. Who who do you think of as your competitors and And I never quite know how to answer it because I'm not selling a dishwasher. You're you're doing a different thing.
1: I mean, what Vox proposes to do is very different from what the New Yorker proposes to do as opposed to the New York Times. So, but there are intersections. And, uh, you know, do I pick up the New York Times magazine and read a great piece and think, damn it. I, I both admire it and say, you know, yeah, of course, or the Atlantic or something. But there's nothing like, Newsweek in time in the 50s or in the 60s, when it was almost an identical uh, genre going head to head. But here's a way in which I... I, I mean, the, look at The Atlantic, for example. The New Yorker publishes 47 issues a year and a very rich website. We also have a New Yorker radio hour. We've made, had experiments in television. So that's its thing. The Atlantic is very different. It's 10 print issues a year. And arguably, they don't put their maximum resources in that. Tends to, if I can read them right, and I know Jeff pretty well, Jeff Goldberg, it's it's in the web. And so we're doing a different thing at a, a different scale and with a different frequency. There's also a way, in, and this is the but place I But where I, want, I, get I, tripped I, I, I do on want it. these places to be good. I benefit as a citizen, and I think even, even, even competitively, it's good for us to be beaten. It's good for us to... When the New York Times Magazine or The Atlantic or Harper's or, or for that matter, Vox or anything else, that's good for everything.
2: It also seems that there is – we do compete for advertising dollars, all of us. Um, We're all in the same RFPs and, you know, not all of us, but but, but there is a finite amount of that. We compete for the audience's attention. In that way, we're also competing with the Big Bang Theory and we're competing with sort of anything, YouTube and, you know, whatever – I always think it's funny um, and telling when Reed Hastings of Netflix said this is his biggest competitor is sleep, and, <laughs> and he's probably right. Uh, but there was this other thing that uh, I, I think wish we unusual. could defeat sleep. Well, I—that's I, a whole other podcast, and I—I I, I very I, much I go so and sleep as a cousin I of so, death.
1: So this is the Ariana Huffington. Fetishizing sleep. I if we could eliminate sleep, you'd have a third of your life I, back.
2: I cannot I have a I very deep, sleep. I have a very deep disagreement with um with my wife Annie on this. This is like a signal difference between us as human beings. She just I, loves sleeping. She believes in sleep, like a normal human being. And I, I find sleep to be an insult.
1: It's it's humiliating. Yes. Sleep for five minutes, it's good on either end. And then just it's just a blank. I think there's something slightly Jewish about this. It's like, it's, it's this. like death.
2: Yes, I think a lot of Jews believe sleep is like death. Well, I I don't know if I
1: could ascribe it to Jewishness, but it's just, (laughs) it's a ridiculous activity.
2: (laughs) It's ridiculous. And yet apparently it's necessary. So, but the other thing that I do think is interesting is that when the, the Atlantic gets people into politics or people begin, I always think a signal thing about somebody reading the Atlantic more it's become more likely, not less likely to read Vox. So there's a just weird and somewhat strange interaction between different publications where there's a way in which we're in competition with each other. And then there's a way in which we're sort of as a industry trying to take the audience more towards the stuff we do and take their time away from That's interesting. Never other television never about programs it like that. or whatever it might be. Look, uh, I, I create more talent that then circulates throughout the, throughout the industry. It, just, it creates a weird, that's why I say it's not like selling dishwashers. Once you buy one, you're not done. No, no, um, no, 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 no. Reading I think, The New Yorker got me into other kinds of long form well, journalism. Good, good. Look, I, I, nothing has been better for The
1: New Yorker than the invention of this term long form. I, I have to say, Ezra, I, I, I was always the older guy and it was all too often guys. At these kind of early internet dinners or events, and I would be invited and I knew I was't be invited. I was being invited as the kind of editor of a what was politely called a legacy uh, media outlet, which of course, the glint in the eyes of my younger brothers and sisters was that I was soon to be like the Stegosaurus itself, uh, dead in a ditch. And there were certain truisms that people, I would be, you know, hearing, the truisms were no one would pay for any, I hate this word, but content. No one would pay for that because it's free. Information wants to be free, which was a misapplication of what that phrase, information wants to be free, meant. Information wants to be free and it wants to get, you know, to Nigeria as fast as it gets to Silver Spring, but I'm not so sure it wants to be free of charge. Uh, And the other thing was that nobody would read anything on the internet of any length. That was also an evangelical hard truism that I was hearing all the time. And I was wrong about a lot of things. Always am. But those two things they were wrong about. People will pay for things that are extraordinary. People will read things that are great. It might not be 330 million Americans, but it'll, if, (laughs) I remember once I was talking, I I was interviewing Philip Roth and he was deploring the state of fiction reading audiences. This is before he became, again, a best-selling author. So he was in a kind of despairing mode. But to cheer himself up, he said, if you you write a novel and only 5,000 people buy it and read it, that may seem depressing, but if all 5,000 people streamed through your living room and shook your hand and said, thanks for the for the four evenings that I spent reading this novel, you would be brought to tears with gratitude. And so sometimes I, I imagine, look at the readership of The New Yorker. There's a million now, <laughs> thanks a little bit to Trump in the recent weeks, a million, 250,000, 300,000 readers. Now we live in a country of how many? 300 million plus people. But if I imagine them as Yankee stadiums filled with people, that's a whole lot of people being absorbed in texts that are often enigmatic, complicated, take time to read. I'm filled with gratitude to them for taking the time. And I know that I'm not the only thing they're reading.
2: When you put out an issue of The New Yorker, what is your internal test on whether it's good? What makes you feel like you've done a good job that week? It can be it differs for a given
1: issue because remember, we're not a publication of obligation. The New York Times damn well better cover de Blasio, the White House, the Yankees, the Mets if you have to, even the Red Sox on occasion. There are obligations, there are countless obligations that are given to the New York Times that I expect as a reader that they're they're on to. The New Yorker is something different. You expect us to have a political comment that week about you know charlottesville or or the latest outrage from the white house or what what have you global warming whatever it might be and you expect us to have reviews in the back that get to the movie or the book or the something of its moment the rest is up for grabs so it it Every, anything can happen in a given week, so the mood of a of a of a, of an issue can be altered by the, the centerpiece of the issue. This week that we're talking was a very weirdly heavily investigative week, particularly a piece by Rafi Khachdorian about Julian Assange, and then a piece about uh, basically a money laundering operation that, that um, Donald Trump invested in, in 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 Georgia, not state of Georgia but the mm-hmm. nation. So this week, which I'm very proud of, but it has a very heavily investigative tilt. On another week, it could be, the issue could be built around an Ian Frazier piece, uh, which is very funny. Uh, So it depends. William Sean used to carry around in his wallet. I don't know if you were a kid, when you were a kid, you were a sports fan, but I would, like a dummy you know, uh, occupy my board hours in school by writing out the ideal starting five in history, you know, uh, Will Chamberlain, Bob Cousy, whatever, whatever you like, Elgin Baylor. Sean used to ha- carry on as well an ideal issue of The New Yorker. You know, Truman Capote feature on blah, blah, blah. Um, Letter from London from Janet Flanner. A kind of platonic ideal. Did it change? Did he change the card? I I don't know. There's a photograph of it in one of the million books about the New Yorker that I found completely charming that here was this, you know, figure of great probity and maturity and he was behaving like an NBA fan for his own enterprise. I kind of love that. And I think about it like that too and you're always falling short. You know, what I loved about my relationship with Cy Newhouse is A, he never read the magazine in advance, never had a Suggestion for the magazine. Never said, you know, I have this friend lay off of him or her. None of that. And what I really enjoyed was that he always liked the right thing. He had good taste. But didn't go over much about it because he thought he'd be intruding somehow in the editorial process, both in the past and in the future, if he sort of laid it on too
2: thick. This is a good bridge to something that that I am struggling with, um, and I'm curious how you think about it. How in this era? When the emotional intensity around political news has jacked up to such a high level, how do you retain the mental space as an institution to keep having that mix? How do you not become a publication online or in print of obligation where it feels like everybody is thinking about Trump and so you need to think about Trump that much too and other things get squeezed out? Well, I don't want to underestimate what I think we're living in. I
1: think we're living in an emergency. And I've thought this from the start. I think we've had bad presidents before. And by the way, we've had worse presidents because Donald Trump hasn't had the time yet um, or the opportunity yet to do something quite as catastrophic as, well, name your event, the Gulf of Tonkin or, you know, whatever it might be. But he is a uniquely... Dishonest, uh, prejudiced, and incompetent p- chief executive, in my view. And I don't think I'm alone in this. And we all, at least all of us who feel this, live with a certain sense of foreboding of what it could lead to. It's already, a lot of things have already happened. A lot of, um, hollowing out of the government has happened uh, we've we've isolated ourselves uh, morally and in terms of uh, policy on a number of issues whether it has to do with national security or global security or global warming or just a whole host of issues but i also know that our a human being requires uh, other things other other information other than what's happening inside that white building on Pennsylvania Avenue. And I also have an awareness of how much they're reading about in the New York Times, the Washington Post or online and any any other publication. And there is a such thing in this world as um, joy, um, um, different kinds of human drama that are only fulfilled by fiction or other subjects or humor or uh, other approaches. Nevertheless, we've written a hell of a lot about this White House and all that extends for it. And we will go on doing it because I do think it's an emergency.
2: Is it harder for the New Yorker to cover this White House, given what this White House thinks, the New Yorker thinks of it, given what you think and just expressed of it? You mean in terms of access? In terms of access, in terms of getting time with people, in terms of doing the sort of profiles that the New Yorker is known for?
1: Well, we've, You know, sometimes access is an overrated thing. It is true that in my case as a writer, I profiled Obama a number of times and had a lot of access to him and um, so have other people. But, you know, our reporters have been talking to people at at the White House now. You know, I had Maggie Haberman on the New Yorker radio hour. And I said to her, it seems to me as a reader, and certainly as an editor too, because I know a little bit about who our reporters are talking to, that everybody hates everybody and therefore everybody's talking to you. You, Maggie Haberman, or Brian Lizza, or whomever. You said it's absolutely true. Now, if you're talking about Trump himself, no, Trump is not raising his hand to come, come to the New Yorker. We try, but I look, I think that first of all, He's obsessed with, as a reader, the validation on the one hand of the Murdoch products, Fox, the New York Post, the Wall Street Journal. And he also knows that the quickest way into the bloodstream of of what he sees as the establishment is the New York Times and the Washington Post. So he's most engaged with that.
2: Um, How he feels about the New Yorker, I couldn't say. When it was October 2016, and you thought, as presumably as many people thought, that Hillary Clinton was going to win, yeah. and we were probably going to have a reasonably boring period in politics. what I Oh, thought I didn't think be. it was going to be boring. Well, that's interesting. What did you think it would be like? Uh, I, <sighs> Boy, when has it ever been boring? I think there have been lots of times when it's comparatively boring. I think we've been in, a, in an extended period in which politics is unusually central basically nine eleven to to now. Well,
1: that's a long time.
2: That was a long time. That's a long time. That's 16
1: years. Um, Yeah, yeah. I thought she was going to win. And, you know, The New Yorker is not a polling industry. I mean, I read the polls like you did. And, and uh, my wife, I can never tell whether it was a matter of how fact-based it was, how much it was superstition. Um, but she, f- for months and months and months, kept saying, you know, uh, this is my wife, Esther Fine, who's a, a former Times reporter and f- pays very, very close attention to this stuff. And she really thought he had a great chance. Really thought she had, he had a great chance because of some of the things that we knew and some of the things we didn't know. I mean, we didn't know the extent of some of the other factors and the Comey thing happened when it happened. She's a flawed candidate too. And her appeal was flawed. And, and I thought, I really thought that she was going to win and her battles with Congress were going to be even bloodier than...
2: So th- this is what I was going to ask was, when you then thought about 2017, 2018, what did you think were going to be the great stories of this age? When you thought about how the New Yorker would have to staff up, what it would want to turn its attention to, when you were planning that out? In, in, a, in a Clinton era? Yeah, but not necessarily political.
1: Well, I'm very proud of the fact that the New Yorker long predating me has been obsessed with and on it were concerned the the great existential, political, environmental issue of our time. This is the magazine that Bill McKibben published. The really first piece that popularized, I think it was a piece of kind of popularizing science and politics about, about climate change. And that, you know, and certainly in my time has been followed by a three-part three series by Elizabeth Colbert, who then went on to write The Sixth Extinction. But I think that that requires constant attention. And I, believe me, believe me when I tell you, that's a great, a great Trumpian phrase, believe me. I, I know that all of us resist this subject as readers, it's, it's considered boring. Who wants to read about solar panels, wind power, uh, alternative energy sources, the politics of saving s- coastal cities. It's, you know, n- it's not as sexy as, you know, Anthony Scaramucci describing the um, dorsal flexibility of Steve Bannon. It ain't funny. And it takes place in a different time frame. Mm-hmm. But I think that time frame has caught up with us in in such dramatic ways that it it um, it's imperative for us to continue covering it and um, and banging away at
2: it. What did you think was becoming a great story? Becoming a great story. I'll, g- I'll give an example. Yeah. Something I yeah. noticed in the New Yorker over I mean, the it last year and a half, them, yeah, was that it had become really really good on the culture of the tech world.
1: Yeah, you know. We always have to remember, we're not going to be good at um, the same things the New York Times is going to be good at, or Vox is going to be good at, or we're, we're kitted out in a certain way in terms of our staff and how we approach things. You now, we've had a big cultural change because I should backtrack and say the cultural change of becoming digital for the New Yorker was in a way more complex than the New York Times or the Washington Post. Why? The Washington Post and the New York Times, going from being a paper newspaper to a digital first enterprise, has its, I, I am the first to admit its complexities and its differences. But it's really the same wine in a new kind of bottle. Yeah, there are some videos, there's, there's this, there's the overnight newsletter, there's all kinds of new bells and whistles when you, when it's digital. But you have hundreds of people in a room who are newspaper reporters who, knew, who write at a certain length and quickly, and they follow beats, and they're organized in that way. We are much smaller, and people come here in order, or they did, to write in a different way, which takes more time. So the question came up, and I'll get to your, your other question. The question came up, what do we do with this new digital tool? Do we just take what we did on The New Yorker and throw it online and hope it gets all over the world faster? Well, in the beginning, yes. In the beginning, yes. But we've now developed, both in terms of staff and approach and culture, a way for certain writers who wrote, say, three times a year to also add to their approach, say, George Packer. George Packer was, came, came to the New Yorker. He was going to write three, four pieces a year, big ones that took months to do. But George Packer also has a polemical side to him. And the web is given to that. He can react to something that happens on Wednesday with intelligence and experience and all the rest. So we've, had to, we've changed the culture within and we've also added people from without who, who have this other way of going at things been complex. It hasn't been easy. It's been, it's an ongoing process. Um, in terms of subject, um, uh, y- y- what was the thing you raised?
2: What, what were you interested in as emerging stories? Like when I, was oh, a terms of of tech, New Yorker, yeah. In terms of tech,
1: look, I'm not interested in gear. I mean, we occasionally will have, you know, there's a new iPhone or a new this or that. I, I just feel that that's well covered. So, uh, loads of people are on that. But I do want to read a 10,000-word profile of Johnny Ive, um, which gets into, you know, past the, the few quotes that he's issued before, and he allows somebody in, and I learned about the whole world of the design of this instrument that everybody on the subway is holding, and everybody is bumping into me on the sidewalk, is holding, and then everybody is so fucking absorbed in all day long why does it look the way it does why does it work the way it does how does it speak to me this is johnny ive is you know the great designer for apple and we've done dozens of these and there's also questions about what it's doing to our consciousness good bad and indifferent you don't tweet i don't but i look at twitter all the time um in 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 the journalistic sense. When something happens, I look at it every day.
2: Why if you're gonna addict yourself to it, don't you? Why well, I'm not addicted.
1: I, I use it, I wanna see what, you know, everybody's saying about blah or I wanna see what, you know, Julia Yaffe is saying about Russia or I wanna read about, you know, Susan Glasser is uh, something of interest. You know, just mm-hmm. particular people I'm following. Um, why don't I, why don't I tweet? Because it's not lost on me that people in jobs like mine follow two disastrous routes, and they rarely seem to have a third. The first disastrous route um, is they get on and they say, because they're being playing it safe, we have a really great story today on blah. Uh, we have a really awesome da-da-da-da, the, self, the promotion of the institution, which is hideously boring.
2: Mostly my Twitter now. Because you're playing it safe. I know.
1: <laughs> the, other, the other form is you do that, and then at two o'clock in the morning, you get pissed off, or you've had two scotches or a joint or whatever it is that, that floats your boat, and you say something really Ill- ill-considered, and it's not just on you, you've screwed the institution that you, you, mm-hmm. you pretend to lead. Um, I love Dean Beckham. i known him for years. He's a terrific guy, but you know he had an episode or two on Facebook that I bet you he wishes he had back. And I don't think, and I haven't seen Dean tweeting much at all. And I I I haven't looked at his Facebook stuff, but I bet you he's played it pretty safe ever since. I I just, you know, I got enough outlets. I could write comment, I could write online, which I do. I have the magazine itself, which is, you know, I I have some influence on. Um here I am talking to you. I, I just another thing that might be more distracting than attracting. Um, I have it's not like I have contempt for it, just the opposite. I think it's an interesting means. Um, But again, there's this problem where you have to sleep six
2: hours or something. So speaking of, of, of that time allocation problem, what are the parts of your job that you think you spend maybe too much time on and that you spend too little time on?
1: Well, the latter always everybody will say, and rightly so, thinking, reading, considering, and that's true.
2: I've mostly just given up.
1: Meetings. Meetings are, uh, you know, uh, look, I I love my colleagues. I love the colleagues that are in the meetings. But I bet you those meetings would be half as long if we didn't sit down. That was a George W. Bush thing. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, but they all sat down. I think standing up or maybe standing on your head would be good. If we get (laughs) – the meetings would be a fraction as long as they are. To me, the worst words in the English language are, let me take you through the deck. You go into a certain kind of meeting or corporate kind of meeting and people pass out a 45-page or a 50-page deck which is then projected on the wall and I want to die. I want to die. But, you know, some of it's necessary. Um, these things are done in earnest and they deserve my attention because they have to do with the financial. Usually it's about the financial well-being of The New Yorker. And if I, if I take my eye off of that, and somehow delude myself into thinking that my own piece about you know Leonard Cohen is is should absorb uh, the next three weeks. Or two, that's going to hurt the magazine. That's going to hurt the New Yorker. When I write, it is a form of self indulgence. It's because I enjoy it, and maybe I think it won't hurt the
2: magazine. But I I do I I love it. So then uh, I will be respectful of your time. Let you get back to your day. But but here's a final question that we always ask on the podcast, which is. What are three books you've read over the years, cared about, that have influenced you, that you would recommend people read?
0: Hmm.
2: Well, there's more than three. You can say as many as you want.
1: Boy, three. I should have prepped for this. You should have told me in advance. But, you know, I... I sometimes do, but I think you get worse answers when you tell people. Do you? um, You know, I'm not the only journalist to feel this way, but Orwell holds a very special place for me. It holds a special place for me because of my time in Moscow because of his attention to language. And as a foreign correspondent, uh, Homage to Catalonia is, a, is a, a crucial book to me. The book that woke me up as a reader of literature was Dante. I mean, it sounds antiquarian or crazy, but um, that exploration, the time as a young person... To pay attention to one poem and to to get some sense of its richness by spending some months on it, because it was a course, um, completely and utterly changed my life. I, I went on a Jane Austen binge recently, because I don't know why. I, th- I know there's been a lot of books about her lately. I think in some ways she she didn't invent the novel, but she invented she invented that depth of consciousness. My, I think the deepest novel that I've ever read and I reread it thanks to my colleague, Rebecca Mead is middle March. I mean, I, I, for a long time, I thought, um, Anna Karenina was my favorite, but I, I middle March. she's the smartest novelist. She's, the, she's the most psychologically complex and for language, sheer language. Um, uh, Nabokov is, to me,
2: the adventure of a lifetime. So I've, I've broken your rule of three. That That is plenty. David Remnick, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure, Ezra. Thank you to David Remnick for being on the show, to The New Yorker for, for hosting me there. I did the podcast from there. beautiful offices in New York, uh, to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, and to all of you for tuning in. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen.